This episode is sponsored by Clubhouse, project management tools for software teams. Built by proud functional programmers, Clubhouse is used by software engineering organizations around the world and is an ideal planning tool for teams that want to see the big picture. Visit clubhouse.io slash geekery to sign up for a free trial and a $50 credit. Clubhouse. Dream. Develop. Deploy. Proctor here with some conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. Curion is taking place July 18th and 19th in Rome. Curion is a rare event where academic minds responsible for concepts and tools, now invaluable to everyday software development, like functional programming or generics in Java, collide with the movers and shakers in industry that are building next-generation systems and developing software engineering practices central to our entire industry. Visit curry-on.org to find out more and to register, and your ticket is good for all the European Conference of Object-Oriented Programming as well. Compose Melbourne is a new functional programming conference focused on developing the community and bringing typed functional programming to a wider audience. It is a two-day event being held in Melbourne, Australia on the 29th and 30th of August 2016. The first day features single-track presentations followed by a second day of workshops and an unconference. It is a new sister conference of the New York-based Compose Conference. Elixir Conference taking place August 31st through September 2nd in Orlando, Florida. The two days of conference are on September 1st and 2nd, with an optional training day on August 31st. The conference includes five training courses, which provide six hours of hands-on instruction. Visit elixirconf.com to register and to find out more. Full Stack Fest will be held in Barcelona on September 5th through the 9th. It will be comprised of two main blocks with a gap day in between. The full agenda is out, and they will have industry leaders on stage from companies such as Netflix, Microsoft, Spotify, Pusher, Erling, Twitter, Google, and many more. And make sure to visit fullstackmaster.fullstackfest.com to check out Fullstack Fest's bot that will chat with the community. Visit 2016.fullstackfest.com to find out more and to register. The Erling User Conference is coming up in Stockholm, Sweden. The conference will be taking place on the 8th and 9th of September, with tutorials on the 7th and training running the 6th through the 16th of September. With keynotes by Fred Herbert and Simon Peyton Jones, a fireside chat with Jane Wallerud and Erling co-inventors Mike Williams, Joe Armstrong, and Robert Verding, and the rest of the speaker lineup can be found on the website. And all attendees are entitled to participate in a complimentary tutorials on the 7th of September, sponsored by Ericsson Inquista. Early bird tickets are now available, and get a 10% discount on the conference when you use the code FUNCTIONALGEEKERY10. Visit www.erlang-factory.com slash euc2016 to register and to find out more. Strange Loop is sold out, but a number of surrounding events still have tickets available. ElmConf is taking place on September 15th, and tickets and information can be found at elm-conf.us. RacketCon is on September 18th, and tickets and information can be found at con.racket-lang.org. PWLConf2016 is the first full-day Papers We Love conference, co-located with the pre-conference events at StrangeLoop in St. Louis, Missouri on September 15th. PWLConf will build upon, and further, the unique experiences that the traditional Papers We Love chapter events provide. The conference intends to bring academia and industry within reach of one another, hoping to foster stronger collaboration and mutual appreciation across respective fields. Tickets to PWLConf are $40 with an optional donation and free if you're a student or recipient of a Strange Loop Opportunity Grant. Keep an eye out for updates on PWLConf.org as speakers are still being confirmed. Lambda World is taking place September 30th and October 1st of 2016. Lambda World is the longest functional programming conference in Spain and Portugal, and one of the biggest in Europe. 
They expect more than 350 attendees to gather together in their awesome venue, an old tobacco factory in Cadiz, downtown. The focus of Lambda World is to bring up together developers around functional programming, no matter which language they use it for. Visit www.lambda.world to sign up for early bird tickets, CFP info, and to find out more. Destination Code, a new unconference starting in Utah, is having its inaugural event this December. The unconference brings energetic and seasoned mentors to the mountain village of Summit Powder Mountain for sessions and workshops worked into the day between ski sessions, farm-to-table meals, and an inspiring getaway. Visit www.destination.codes to find out more. And Code Mesh is coming up again, taking place the 3rd and 4th of November with tutorials on the 2nd of November. Early bird tickets for Code Mesh are scheduled to be available until the 21st of July. But beware, the very early bird tickets sold out amazingly fast, literally in a few hours. Visit codematch.io to submit your talks and to register, or to sign up for email updates to find out more as information becomes available. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com, and I will be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes, or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media. I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com, and I will put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm Rester, and this week with us we have Elise Ward. Elise, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Hi, so... Where to start? I guess I'm a Belgian software engineer. Actually, didn't study software engineering. I studied materials engineering, so anything to do with production of metals and composites and things like that. That's what I was actually majoring on, I guess you'd say. And after my studies, I sort of realized that I had enjoyed the software bits of the studies much more than I actually did all the other bits. And so I found a job in writing banking software, which is not massively exciting, I guess, but was actually a really good learning ground because immediately they have very strong, I guess, methodology and procedures around getting, you know, very well-defined releases out. They had version control. They had all the things that now are really, really common. They had them back in the day when most people still were saving files.old or files.old too. They, they already had a decent versioning, decent release management, etc. So actually stayed quite long with that company. And I did C and COBOL and a number of languages. And they gave me a number of opportunities, I guess, to do various interesting things. And, and so I stayed with them for a while. And then after them, I decided to do a master in artificial intelligence because I, I sort of felt like my brain needed a little bit of, I guess, a bit of a different challenge. And artificial intelligence had always interested me, so I did that. And then after that, I returned to work and did nothing at all with artificial intelligence. Even though my studies were interesting, it turned out not to be that easy to find a job related to it. And that was before big data, etc. And so... After that, I started freelancing for a bit, and I ended up, after a few years, I actually ended up bumping into a number of languages. I was actually looking at concurrency and parallelism, 
So I tried a bunch of languages like Erlang and Clojure and Scala. And I quite liked some of these languages. So I did, I guess I did a few toy projects in Clojure. At the time, I also moved to London where I worked for a company which heavily used Clojure. I didn't actually use it that much day-to-day at the time because most of their stack was Ruby and JavaScript. But I definitely came into a fair amount of contact with it. And after that, moved to Berlin, had my daughter, which actually sort of put me out of action for a little bit. And when I started working again, I guess I had... um, um, also a kind of like, well, I really have been interested in Haskell for a while. I'd like to give it a go. And what kind of project could I do, which will be a, a decent challenge? And I decided to try and write a game in Haskell. And that turned out to be a serious challenge because it took me, I guess, a few months to find libraries that would work properly. I don't know if it would take me that long now, but not knowing Haskell very well and also being sleepless as you are as a young mother, it took me a while to um, to sort of get started on that. And it was really interesting as a learning experience. So I, I, I did the one, did the talk about it and then decided to try and write a book because I thought that it was a really fun way to, to learn Haskell and also to get into the whole world of how to put a game together. I think the concepts are translatable to other languages. So I decided to start a Leanpod book on that. And so that took me, I guess, to a certain point. So, okay, I'll be completely honest with you. It's not 100% finished. I'd really like to re-review it and potentially rewrite some of the code since the Haskell has moved on a little bit since. But I think you probably never are completely finished with a book anyway. During that time when I was writing the book, I also did a few freelancing jobs in Haskell, which was sort of interesting as well, since it forced me to have the more common Haskell experience of writing code for real-life applications, I guess, because writing a game in Haskell was fun and instructive. We all know that most games are written in C++, so it's not really something very commonplace yet. And after that, I drew, I guess, an acquaintance who is the CEO of the company I work for now. I started working for them and their Mastodoncy is a closure shop. And well, saying closure shop, they're um, a big data consultancy, but they only work in closure. And I thought it would be interesting to work for them because they have both really strong ethics. They try to take on projects that... I guess make, I wouldn't say with the world a better place, but uh, they try to do things that are ethically responsible. And at the same time, they're also really into their data science and closure and tech. And so it, it seemed like a good place to go for me. And they're also a remote company. So that also worked perfectly for flexibility as a parent. So that's how I started doing closure full time. And that's been for a year now. And so that's my background. I hope I haven't rambled too much. No, that's a pretty good story. You didn't ramble at all. And I think that's part of what makes, at least for me, talking to all these different guests interesting is to see and get a feel of what that journey is. 
and I had followed you on Twitter and I'd seen people talk about you through your retweets and some of, I guess, some of your master's papers and some of your blog posts about your time in Haskell and then your game programming Haskell book you were talking about. But I didn't realize that you kind of had the device background before you got into some of that stuff with looking into Erlang and Scala and Clojure and the like. And so you said that was coming from the concurrency background and just wanting more concurrency in the application. And those were just the ones you started looking into. Was it just because those were what you heard about or what kind of prompted that early research besides just the concurrency? And because you've got other languages that support it. So can you go into that a little bit? Yes. So it was actually, I think that's a long time ago now, but actually the background is that I wanted to do a conference talk about concurrency. So I was doing mostly Ruby at the time, so it was for Ruby conferences mostly. And I really enjoy conference talks as a way to really sort of research a subject to death. And I did that for garbage collections, etc. as well. So that that's, that's sort of how I educate myself in those things. But for concurrency, yes, I went to basically all the languages I thought had interesting things going, like Erlang, obviously with the actors and and how it runs is, is, is really interesting. And the Erlang threads. And Scala has had Akka, which is also an actor library, which I looked at, which is, I think, quite quite extensively used as well. And Go as well, obviously, with its channels and its CSP-inspired concurrency. Basically, that's how I, I dug into those languages and wrote little toy examples and tried to make an interesting case for the different paradigms that are used to handle you know parallelism and concurrency so that's how it i really came to those okay and that's what i was wondering because you mentioned the functional languages but i wasn't sure if things like go and some of the other stuff were in there yeah it's not functional isn't it but it has interesting concurrency features i guess and that's what i was wanting to dig in was was that your introduction into functional programming as well was you were researching concurrency and some of these languages just happened to be functional that had the interesting concurrency models there as well, or was there exposure to that elsewhere? I guess at that point, I really wasn't looking at whether a programming language was functional or something else. It really wasn't a factor there. To be honest, it wasn't that talked about at the time either, because uh, as I said, it was probably 2012 or something, so a while ago or earlier even. But what started interest in functional languages? Again, I'll be honest, I don't think I understood properly what functional languages mean before I started doing a little bit more closure. And Haskell pushed that even more by obviously enforcing something like purely functional programming. So it was something that I came to by Again, like sort of on the job slightly rather than necessarily through seeking it actively. And that's what it was sounding like. And that's what I was wanting to get through was it was the roundabout way versus actively seeking out. You started learning those lessons and seeing how it was applied. And then just from the tangential contact, it was something that kind of grew on you and made you want to research more. Because if you're picking up Haskell, generally there's, it seems that People who pick up Haskell are doing that because they want to learn that pure functional style mm. as a primary thing. 
instead of just like, oh, let's just pick up another language and I'm going to do Haskell because of the types or something else. It's usually around the types that the purity enforces. And so that's what I was wondering is if you actually went so far as to take a shot at Haskell, that click that actually said there is something here and this is worth digging into further. Yes. So I think the jump into Haskell was really because I sensed that it was really, really different from anything I'd done before. As in being, I'd done Java, I skipped, I guess, my one and a half Java years in the whole resume, but I'd done, I guess, types with Java and I hadn't found Java that congenial at the time. But the type system in Haskell is just, I don't know if you've come in, you probably have come in contact with it, but it's, it's fairly extensive. Like, you know, you start with a fairly simple sort of set which you can work with, but once you add all kinds of extensions, you can do crazy stuff and, you know, type families and data kinds and God knows what else. So I think it was definitely very, very interesting from that point of view. And also, like you say, the purely functional thing where you cannot ever forget when you're side effecting, it will affect everything if you side effect. So you want to keep it on top of the functional stack sort of thing. Those sort of lessons make it really worth it, I think, to learn Haskell, even if you're not going to use it day to day. It's a really interesting language to to learn, even to broaden your horizons, and it would potentially make you program differently in other languages, I think. And when you get in and you've done some closure, so I guess we'll jump back to the closure because that was the first kind of on-the-job stuff you were doing, even though you said you weren't directly doing it a whole lot, just that there was around and you had that exposure to real-world closure than just, here's a toy problem and I've done it for concurrency and closure and then some Scala and some Go and some Erlang and various other things. What were some of the things that you found when you were first really digging in? for what closure you were able to do at that first job before you actually made the Haskell? And what was that transition in your thinking like as you started digging in and being exposed to it, even if you weren't directly working on it all the time? So I think my first impression with closure probably what everyone who hasn't done any Lisp before has, which is like, oh my God, you know what's going on here? Sort of thing. The inversion of, well, the inversion is actually... The right way around, I guess, but the fact that you have function, argument, arguments, like plus two, two, instead of having two plus two, and, you know, those things that actually take a, a little bit to get used to. The, the first impression is a bit like, oh, what, what's this? And all the parents everywhere, which you get used to. So, yeah, it was more sort of a getting very familiar with the whole thing, I guess, was the, the first impression. Was a, was a little bit of work, but in in hindsight, I'm I'm actually quite glad it was the first functional language I learned, because I think Haskell would have been more of of the deep end sort of thing, because it it has so much more to learn. Well, with Clojure, you can start with functional principles, like pretty much everyone else. I had a go at reading um, the Wizard book, um, SIGP, so structures. Uh, the structure and interpretation of computer programs. Of computer programs, that's it. Yes, yes, yes. And sort of that, and having a go at closure was good to get into, like you know, higher order functions and passing around functions and playing around with all those constructs. So I think it was a very good first functional language to learn. 
And was the functional aspect some of the part that tripped you up as well, aside from just the parentheses and the function name being inside and the first argument as the list, or was that something that you kind of kind of got relatively straightforward? Yes, I think relatively straightforward. To be honest, from the moment I started using functional programming, I found it much, much simpler. It's it's just so much more straightforward. There's you know input output basically. There's no strange hidden state being mutated under your nose. It's it's just you put something in that comes out, and if you put the same thing in, the same thing will come out again. It's just much more easy to reason about, I think. And I ask because I know some people, it is one of those things that is inherently natural to them. They're like, okay, this makes sense, and then other people have the. I'm still trying to understand the isolation and everything that functional programming entails because I've only got available to me the stuff that comes in versus what goes out and how do I do loops if I've got something that's more immutable and make that transition into thinking in recursion. So it's interesting to see which people it becomes intuitive to and which it doesn't and some of the reasons why. So do you have any reasons why that in retrospect you think that foundation was set for functional programming to be more intuitive for you? Or like, was there anything else that kind of you think built up over the years looking in retrospect that kind of laid that foundation? I guess it is because I have a fairly strong math education and I've always found math fairly, I wouldn't say easy, but it came reasonably naturally. And I guess functional programming has more in common with functions in math than potentially some of the other paradigms. Although, to be fair, I guess you can also reason about objects as well in a fairly intuitive way. It's just that, you know, when you have a lot of objects, it becomes potentially harder to understand what's going on under the hood. While with functions, it's more straightforward, I think. And that's why I like hearing this is because, again, everybody's got that different background of like, math is easy or math is hard. And I got, I hated math in high school, but I love functional programming or I love math in high school and now it just clicks or I got into dependency hell or whatever it is. And so that's why it's interesting just to dig apart and see that dimension of everybody's progression that I get to talk to. Mm. Yeah, that is interesting. And so you do the closure. How much time did you spend in closure before you took your break and then started researching into Haskell? How long were you around and doing that? And how much exposure did you have at that point before you started looking into Haskell? So I'd been sort of more playing with it for a couple of years in my job in London and potentially getting in touch with production code as well. And then I did a three-month project of closure. So I guess not extensive, but it, it, yeah, that that's about it, I guess. But enough to cover a fairly decent pace of the understanding and play with it then yes. before jumping into saying, now it's time to learn Haskell. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it was probably uh, part of the, after the break of like having a child, it was part of setting oneself a challenge to really get back into it and proving myself that I still had a brain that could function and things like that. So that was part of it. Or it was the delirium of having a child (laughs) and making the bad decisions on 
being tired and like, you know what? This makes sense. I'm going to commit myself to this. <laughs> That's very funny. When I wouldn't normally do that just because I'm tired. <laughs> yes, yes, very true. Also, when my, my daughter was still fairly young, my husband went for a job to New York and I, I we went we went all together for three months. So I, I didn't have a work visa, so I couldn't really freelance as such. So what I did was heavily research that gaming project and that kept me happy and busy for for three months. So once I got back, and also I started writing, so once I got back, I already had a chunk going. And so I want to dig into your book some, because I've heard that slided about, it's a good resource that people pass along that says, look, this isn't just theoretical, whether it be Haskell specifically, that you don't have to do all these theoretical abstract things, and it's only good for hedge fund managing, stock trading kind of stuff, or financial institutions, or whatever it is that's all either very math or research heavy kind of things. But there's examples where Haskell and functional programming in general can be used for this other kind of stuff. So you started to do a game and you took Haskell as that base. Can you walk us through a little bit of what that book entails and some of those lessons you've learned for anybody who hasn't checked out the book and doesn't know about it? Can you give an overview of the book and a tease and maybe we dig into it a little more as we go on? So it's a fairly practical book. In the sense that it's starting with the basics and sort of building up. So first, there's how to implement a game loop. And then how to use graphics. You know that, well, games just as videos are really a succession of images one after the other. So the game loop will just spit out images 60 times per second or whatever your refresh rate is. And so just slowly starting with those principles and then... I also introduced something more functional related, I guess, I guess, which is functional reactive programming, which is not necessary to write a game. Let's be clear about that. But it allows you to compose states as a series of streams of states. I know that doesn't make a ton of sense. So how can I express it? Well, you can represent pushing the left arrow key true time as like true, true, false, 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 true, true, like uh, whether you're pressing it down or not. And then say you have uh, the position of a little character, then the position of that little character can also be represented as a stream with XY coordinates for every moment in time. And then you can represent, I guess, a beginning of a game as the relationship between that arrow key, true or false, and the position of the little character as propelled by the arrow key, for instance. That's a very simple example. But it can obviously go much further when you start talking about you know, ephemeral stuff like projectiles, bullets, or things like that, or monsters, interaction, interactions between monsters and characters, etc. And then I go into more, I guess, technical things or Actually, it's all technical, I guess, but more how to make it look good, like textures, using textures, how to animate things, how to use sound is also a chapter, and then some extra bits about when you have a game, you have a menu, and then you can start a game, and then you have levels, and then you have the end of the game, and you have a score, and they have a high score, things like that, how to implement this. Then a chapter about testing. 
So using the usual tests, but also QuickCheck, which is uh, one of the strengths of Haskell, which is property-based testing. So you can also test how your state will evolve or how you func- if your functions are really do what you want to escape quick check, just like it would in any, any other Haskell program. And then I wrap up things. That's about what my book is uh, is about. And it seems to run the gamut of actually creating a game versus just the small little, here's how you manage the game state loop with just something that's even a command line console. Because I've seen some examples where it's, here's your text-based adventure, and we're just going to program that just because we want to keep the state in something like a state monad and write with an IO monad. But it sounds like you're going full deep dive into sound and textures and everything, in addition just to being able to say, we're going to maintain state and input events with FRP. So let's take a step back. And did you know all this stuff at this beforehand, or was this all stuff that you were digging through at the same time as you were learning Haskell and how to do everything with this in Haskell about all these textures and shading and all that stuff. Was that part of your AI master course that you did with some of this stuff of figuring out how to learn to do a game just because that was the mechanism of doing an AI or was all this just picked up ad hoc as well? It was mostly picked up ad hoc. I had advice from some people around me, but basically as this was my first real venture in writing a game, so I suspect that someone who would have spent 10 years doing this professionally might approach it differently. At the same time, I think I can probably explain it in a way that is understandable to people who haven't done it before. So I guess that's that's the upside. Although I have seen some interesting projects in the space, which if I have time, I definitely would, would like to look at again. As I said, it's it's like it's it's not really ever a done job, such such a such a project. Like the rest of software, right? Yes. (laughs) And that just makes that book, to me, seem even more impressive that you're picking up Haskell and using Haskell while you're learning all these other things instead of just saying, I've got this other foundation. How do I apply Haskell to it? So kudos on that because that sounds really impressive. And I've heard great things about the book as far as using it as an example of functional programming is applicable outside of what you would think of just something purely academic. It was a lot of fun to research as well. And so you go into functional reactive programming in the book. And my understanding is that in the same way that your data structure in your state is a transformation of past states in the same way via like an immutable data structure in the same way that your source code repository is the end state of a bunch of other transactions or your bank account is a statement of a bunch of transactions that what happens is that the events just become this list or this stream, depending on how you program against it, whether or not you're simulating it or actually doing it kind of real time, that everything that happens are just other parts of state. So a mouse key is just a new set of state that you're just collecting as well from the outside world. And so it all just becomes that global state and whether it's internal state changes or external state changes, they all kind of look the same. Is that roughly accurate? Roughly, yes, yes. Yeah, that's correct. And that makes it interesting because you can imagine even extending it further and and seeing like if you had something more multiplayer that the states incoming from another player could just be another stream as well. So 
you can express basically everything that's going on like that, yeah. And as you get in and you start dealing with the state, especially in the game context, and this is interesting to me because then potentially all these things are just the small little components that we talk about in the ideal that become composable together. All the actions in the game start to become composable together. And John Carmack, at one point I overheard and gave a presentation about some of the stuff that he's learned with functional programming, where it boils it down to what you're just bare essence of trying to do because the state is just the aggregate of those events instead of saying, okay, well, this thing is here. How did it get here? So I'm assuming you found something else like that too when you're applying all these little state transitions and if you're talking about the projectiles or whatever else and managing how those flow through the system, what was that realization like as you're starting to go through and do these things when you have the more complex interactions of the stuff that goes on in a game? I guess it was really, really interesting. Like, um, it took me a while, I guess, to really understand how to manage. Like, if you have a simple sort of scene going, then you can make do with, like, one network. But if you have levels and projectiles or things like that, and you, you start to think in networks of networks and, like you say, composing them. And then you have the game, which is like an overarching sort of stream. So you have a stream which is composed of streams, which is composed of streams. And it, it, it's really, really interesting. I really have to watch that uh, John Carmack uh, presentation. You're not the first one who refers me to it. But it's really interesting. So with that in mind, out of that learning and knowledge that you are doing this complex system in a game, how have you found that translate back to doing your daily work when you're actually just working on business systems and business logic and things like if you're writing a web service or site or a small little program which is going and feeding in stuff and interacting with the outside world, even though you're working in Clojure now, what lessons have you found from there in thinking about functional reactive programming and thinking of all these event things and networks of networks of networks and events as streams and things coming back. Have you noticed that change the way you tackle some of these problems in the business domains that you work in when you actually take take it and apply it to your day job? I guess a little bit. Nowadays, I'm working with big streams of events and things that have to happen to them. Now, how they're handled, I, I guess it's maybe helped in how to conceptualize them, maybe. Because between the events that happen in a game and incoming data into a Kafka producer-consumer situation and storing in databases or S3 or whatever, it's really not necessarily the same kind of implementation at all. Mostly because you use what other people have developed to handle those things. But it, it definitely helps to imagine what's going on and potentially debug it better, yes. Okay, and yeah, and I wasn't necessarily sure that I would translate one for one. <laughs> Again, as you said, if, you'd, if you've now got that background of visualizing it and seeing this Kafka stream as some sort of game process engine in the background that you're like, okay, how would I translate this with the events coming in and the global state of the app if this is this kind of thing and this is this kind of thing, especially my understanding is 
Kafka is more of a stream-based system than a batch-based processing system. Mm-hmm. And having those streams of streams that come in and being able to do something more functionally reactive and processing things as streams then, okay, now I'm going to spin this up. I'm going to do a bunch of batch transformations and then write something out and then go to sleep and then do that again every hour versus just kind of a constant feed of changes coming in that you need to respond to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely was a good experience for that sort of situation. And so now you've got the job. You're doing your big data stuff. You're doing this Kafka. You're using Clojure. Yes. You're, or I should say you're back to doing more Clojure because you've okay. got the Clojure experience. So you want Clojure, Haskell, Clojure. Yes. What does your Clojure look like now? And do you have any difference in the – I was first learning this Clojure and now I've actually gone through that transition. and. Here's what my closure looks like now or various other lessons that have gone through from either spending more time in the functional languages just in general or even just the inspiration from Haskell and being more explicit about your state and what comes in and what comes out as I've heard that you get with Haskell because I've now got to make sure I do things like IO monads or the equivalent in a dynamic language, but I can't just pass in this weird thing that is relatively impure compared to if I were to try and do it in Haskell. Yeah, you definitely become more aware of side effecting. And I think that, again, that's one reason why Haskell is such a good thing to learn if you're going to do any functional language. So I really enjoy Clojure as well. I find it, I guess, Rich Hickey would be happy to hear me say that I find it simpler. So Haskell is amazing, but it's been a playground for academics for as long as it exists. And that means that, you know, every sort of math computer science professor whose work on Haskell has potentially implemented an extension or two. And you can do pretty much anything you can imagine and even more with Haskell. And that also means that there is so much to know. So I've, I've done, I guess I've done two years of Haskell and I still feel like I've only skimmed the surface. There's so much to know about it and so much to learn. So um, while closure, well, it's more straightforward, I guess. So um, it's good to navigate between both because the Haskell will teach you things you might not have known were possible or like very elegant abstractions like lenses or things like that. And then coming back to closure, it's you might spend less time thinking about how to structure your program and get down to uh, getting it done more quickly. But I guess most both languages have really good aspects to them. So what are some of the things that you've found? Because there's the obvious of dynamic versus static types, which we can discuss a little bit. But then there's the other things that I talked with one guest and they were talking about using a web stack in Haskell where you've got ring and closure, but then you've got the equivalent ish and Haskell, but it uses a monad transformer as the arguments of stuff to pass in and out. So there's the intricacies and the lessons that are learned. What were some of those lessons that you've learned and pulled out either way? And what are some of the nice things that you like about each languages and then the things that you wish the other language had? So I guess in Haskell, I, the obvious thing, you know what you've got. Like uh, the, Obviously, the statically typed thing means that when you have a value, you know what what it is and 
what to expect when you get a map in Clojure. It could be any old thing, which is probably why why they've started doing Clojure spec and the various gradual typing attempts. So I like that. That like with with Clojure, if you're not careful, you can still have surprises. Well, with Haskell, the, the compiler will tell you when when you're doing it wrong. On the other hand, like I said, sometimes I feel like closure is simpler because you don't necessarily have to care about all that to just quickly, you know, get something going and make it work. So I, I guess for correctness and a very robust thing that I think Haskell definitely has, has good sides. And let's say for a web app, I think actually closure would be my preferred language to go to. And then where do you fall? Because you mentioned there's the core typed from Ambrose Bonaire Sergeant and mm-hmm. now the closure spec stuff. And then you've got Redraper's property based testing stuff that's made it into closure. Yes, and, yes. And you've got all those lessons around there. Have you found that the maintainability between the two or that upfront thinking that in, that's in Haskell is beneficial? That even though you don't necessarily do it as much enclosure, or how does some of the minor things impact the way you think about the stuff? Have you noticed a difference in said the discipline and the rapid prototyping is good, and it's I like that and it works, and I don't really have any problems. Or because the types and some of that stuff is looser, I tend to not take advantage of it until I actually like hook up these things. And what was the balance? So if you kind of had to. Wave a magic wand, you mix the best of both worlds. That is interesting. Uh, so I've wondered about that. I have started to really look at uh, typed rackets because it's a list with types in it. So, uh, um, but how to say? I, I think I think to be honest, like I said, both have um, have their joys and their merits. Um, I, I guess. Um, like I said, if I was going to do something very robust and where correctness matters or critical, whatever, I think Haskell definitely has an edge. However, like you say, you have test check in enclosure, but it takes more discipline potentially to use those. Then it potentially comes a little bit more natural in, in Haskell because you already have the types there. I'm interested to see uh, if people also have the discipline to use closure spec all over the place and whether that will have a, a big impact. Another thing I found in Haskell, actually, surprisingly, I find it more maintainable because when you change a type, then the compiler will immediately tell you where to change things all over the place because it, it'll just break until you fix it everywhere. So a change is actually much, much more quickly spread around the code base because the compiler just tells you well, with closure, sometimes you have to find out the hard way or, or write tests. So yeah, I really like both. I'm like one of them people who potentially doesn't get that opinionated, but finds good in in all sides and trade-offs in all sides. So if if you had to put me against the wall and ask me to choose, I don't know what I would choose. And part of that is I've noticed as people get experience, they find those things that are the trade-offs and. Not that everybody wants to go and write an own language because of the maintenance and commitment that it requires, but people start to have the idea of no language is perfect, but what would those pieces be? So 
that's an interesting thing just to always think about. And then you mentioned type racket. Yeah. And so if that's if racket's on your radar for the type racket aspect of it, what else is on your radar? Are you you're doing right now a bunch of big data, so maybe you're not doing a bunch of front end stuff, but what in general is on your radar of more things to go and check out whenever that time becomes available? I guess job wise I've been thrown into a lot of more I guess infrastructure stuff. So we're using Mesos and building a whole stack around that. So it's been really more DevOps, I guess, than I've done before. And that, that's been very interesting. I've learned quite a bit about all kinds of tools and how to work with them. But I guess if you had to ask me what I want to look at in my copious free time, it would be, I'd really be interested to start looking at game AI because um, it just combines two of my interests and I'd be really interested to see the work that's been done on that and contribute potentially. And then I'm, I would assume that that would probably be your background with the game programming in Haskell as well, that even if you don't publicize it, you'd probably just take your guess at trying to implement the game AI as you learn it in something like a closure or Haskell to see what that translates to, I would guess, right? Yes, yes. I think that would be fun. Yes. Yeah. So we're getting close to our time, and I don't want to make sure, I don't want to keep you too much past our time that we've got scheduled. So before we start wrapping up, is there anything we haven't covered that we think we need to make mention to? Anything that, as we were talking, you thought of that you're like, oh, yeah, there's this, but I, I should probably bring it up if given the opportunity. So is there anything that we missed or haven't covered or that you want to go back and touch upon and give some more details to? Just that I encourage potentially anyone to try and write a game in their favorite language to see what it's, what it's like and what it can do. I guess that's about it. I can't really think of anything at the moment. No doubt in an hour or two, I'll, I'll think of something. But uh, at, this, at this point, I can't really think of anything. That seems to be the general response is most people are happy with what we've talked about. And then afterwards, like, maybe that. So if there is some more stuff that you go on. We can always get you back on the future as you continue going down your progression and figuring out what you like. And if you talk type racket or something else, or if you fold back in some of that AI learning in the copious free time that I don't think people actually understand what that word means because they use it amongst every other thing that they're doing. We can always get you back on if you want and just reach out. But one to make sure that from what we've covered today that we weren't missing anything else out that you thought of. I guess to wrap up, you do a lot of conference presentations, at least in some of the ones that I keep aware of. You seem to at least have one or two conference presentations every year. But do you have any other upcoming appearances that you've got this year? We've mentioned your book. Is there anything else you want to plug? Is there anything you want to reinforce about the book? Anything else you're working with that you want people to let know about? Actually, I don't have any appearances planned right now. I, I think I, I, I kind of fancy going to CodeMesh because it was a really good conference last year. And yeah, I guess that's it. I still have the ambition to go to ICFP sometime. It tends to misfire in terms of, in terms of schedule and location at the moment, but I think I'll, I'll make it next time it's in Europe. But no speaking appearances planned at this point. So we'll see what comes up. And then you mentioned having people go out and write a game in their language of choice. Is that the call to action you want to leave for our audience or do you have something else that you want to add for them? 
I just was looking, there's this one person I follow who's writing a really good Haskell book if you want to get into Haskell. So yeah, my book, uh, Game Programming in Haskell, but it's more for people who want to get into Haskell and also do it in a fun way. But there's also, a, I think, a practical Haskell book, which has been in the making and is actually free online as well. The problem is I can't really think of the name of the person. Is it okay if I get back to you on that? Yeah, you can go back, get back to me and we'll put the link in the show notes. The one I can think of offhand is the Haskell book by Chris Allen and Julie Moronuki, but I don't think that one is a free one. So if there's another resource out there, we'll make sure to get that in the show notes as well for people to go and check out and find out more about. Definitely. So I've, I've heard of the Haskell book and I've heard good things about it, but I haven't read it myself. But yeah, I'll, I'll pass you the link of, of that other one. And then where can people find you online and keep up to date with what's going on, find out your learnings, watch you? I know you got a Twitter account, you got a blog. Where's the best place to, for people to follow you, though? So my blog has been reasonably quiet, unfortunately, recently, so I should definitely get back on that. But my Twitter account is definitely the best place, I think, to see day-to-day updates, etc., or even to contact me, potentially. And my blog, I'll try to do better. But at the least, people can always go back and find your old learnings and what you've yes. been doing in the past from there. So I'll get those added to the show notes as well. Okay. Thank you. I'd like to give a Jane. Thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Elise, for taking your time to join me today. I know we had some scheduling conflicts previously with your young kids and my young kids, but I'm glad we were able to find a time that worked for both of us and yes. be able to have this chat. It was very informative, and it was a great pleasure talking to you today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Pleasure, Russell. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.